0: What's up, guys? It's Little D from FMF. And when I'm not mixing gas and hauling ass, I'm listening to Big MX Radio.
1: Hey guys, what's up? This is Andy Frisella here. You're listening to Big MX Radio.
0: But when you're done with this episode, come check out the MFCEO project. The MFCEO.com. I got all your motivation. I've got everything you need to know about running your brand. I've got everything you need to know about getting
1: shit done. And we can do it together. Hi, Dave Despain here. You're listening to Big MX Radio.
0: Well, hello there, Big MX listeners, and how do you go and follow up that voice that you just heard. None other than the great Dave Despain, a guy who has been a broadcaster within the motorsports world for well over 40 years, damn near half of a century, and uh, has captivated audiences like no other. Uh, And In this podcast, I definitely uh, completely spill uh, my guts in the fact that like Dave has a lot to do with why I'm doing this podcast. It's his ability to use that theater of the mind uh, that has really captivated audiences that encouraged me to try and uh, do my best impression of someone who can do something similar, and uh, I hope that at some point I can get to anywhere close to where he is with his career in it and uh, absolutely love to, uh, to listen to him talk and, and just the, the, the words he uses to describe things, uh, it's nothing short of uh, spectacular, great talent. And uh, also, you, you, you'll you find out that uh, he also puts a lot of work into it as well. It's not just uh, a God-given talent that he happens to have. Um, I want to thank everyone for listening to these podcasts. Uh, I've gotten so much Great feedback over the last little while um, just with people that um, listen to the podcast. They enjoy it. They share the stories. They tell me what they like, what they don't like. Uh, and uh, I'm the, the better for it. I want to give a shout out to uh, Sail Rack Max. On uh, on Instagram, that guy kid's always given me great feedback and and very encouraging, and those are the types of things that really help me uh, continue to do this and uh, and build it up into what it's becoming. And I uh, hope you guys enjoy this episode with Dave to Spain. It's always a pleasure for me to talk to somebody who's been there, done it, and go down that memory lane and pull out all those old stories. And uh, I just love when they get on tangents and just kind of go off into uh, their own little world with it because that's what these are all about is those those hidden stories you didn't expect to uncover. So hopefully we were able to do that for you throughout this podcast. As always, if you have... Uh, a suggestion, a request of someone who you'd like to hear on the podcast that I haven't already done, or if you just want to hear more from somebody that I have already done a podcast with. I've done a number of podcasts with people uh, from yesteryear. Uh, I'll try and pull those out uh, from the archives, but uh, otherwise, um, like if you want me to re-up with these people, send me a note. Uh, Brad Gebhardt 88 on Instagram, Brad Gebhardt 88 at gmail.com. Send me an email. Send me a request. Uh, Any feedback is awesome. And uh, I just want to thank all of our awesome sponsors that help out with the podcast. Of course, uh, we've got a brand new partnership with SickWix. SickWix.com, the soy... Candles—they're absolutely gorgeous. Uh, they burn differently than uh, your t- typical uh, candle that you you probably get from the dollar store or a supermarket or something like that. A lot of those candles actually have very harmful perfumes that uh, they use, and uh, they're harmful. They put harmful chemicals into the air that uh, you probably wouldn't want to be inhaling, but the soy candles are a lot more healthy, uh, the perfume that they're made with is a lot less uh, pungent, so maybe you don't get that uh, aroma throughout the room as much, but um, they, they burn fantastic, they actually happen to, like the, the ones with the, a wood um, wick, actually they, they make some a little bit of like crack, crackling wood noise, and uh, obviously that's the, the noise that is made when it burns. And uh, I think you'll really enjoy that. They're awesome. I love them. Uh, I'm getting some scent up to me as we speak. Hopefully they're here before the holiday season. And we're gonna also going to have some giveaways with those guys. So check out sickwicks.com. That's S-I-C-W-I-C-K-S. Check those guys out. They've got a ton of different uh, scents for you guys to go through and uh, they're pretty prompt with how well they they get back to people on uh, the shipping and stuff like that. Also want to give out a shout out to uh, Little D at FMF. If you didn't check out some of the posts that they did about the uh, Kurt Casilli ride day, the sixth year, uh, it's amazing to think that um, it's been six years since Kurt passed away. Uh, They were able to do a benefit ride for him within a few weeks of him passing away um, six years ago, and ever since then, uh, they've raised a million dollars and spent over $600,000 on uh, safety precautions for that sport, for for the sport of off-road, which is fantastic. Uh, A lot of the money, uh, basically 60 cents of every dollar that's donated to um, the foundation gets put right back into safety, um, and, and that's fantastic. Uh, shout out to uh, Dirt Tricks Sprockets. Those guys are amazing. They've uh, helped me out with some giveaways over the years. They've also helped me keep the back end of uh, the drivetrain of my motocross bike fresh. And I really appreciate that. So, uh, Zach Martinez over at, uh, at Dirt Tricks. We really appreciate that. So uh, that's enough for me, guys. Almost five minutes of uh, jabbering at you. I'm sorry about that. But sometimes I like to just do a little quick talk. Uh, head on over to the thecollectiveexperience.com. Check those guys out. Collective, the collective ex, I believe, is uh, the um, or exp. I don't know. Dave's terrible with that, and he and he and he deserves to be punished uh, for having literally uh, a different email, uh, a different website, Twitter, and. Uh, instagram handle for each one of those so uh the confusion it lays with you dave uh, but uh that's dave, dave, dave drakes of course dave to spain now coming up here on the big mx radio podcast i hope you enjoy it um give me some feedback give me some requests and thanks for listening we'll catch you again soon thanks Welcome to the Big MX Radio Podcast Show brought to you by FMF, Donnie Amler Jr. and FMF want you to head over to fmfracing.com and take part in The Drop, an exclusive t-shirt uh, can be delivered to your door every single month for the low, low price of $29.99. That's a subscription service, you need to check that out. I am your host, Brad Gebhardt, with us on the line, motorcycle and motorsport broadcast legend. Dave to Spain. Dave, how's it going?
1: Doing well, Brad. Glad to glad to hear from you from the frozen north. It's uh, yes. it's nice and warm down here.
0: I am. I would imagine most places on the globe are warmer than Winnipeg, Manitoba. Uh, we are <laughs> one of the. Coldest uh, locations um, annually throughout the year. Actually, it's not super super cold today. It's uh, it's it's around uh, maybe 12 degrees Fahrenheit, uh, uh, which is a rather <laughs> balmy day for us. Um, but
1: that may not be that may not be super cold in your world, but don't send that down here where I live, okay <laughs>
0: <laughs> no problem uh, no I'll, I'll jealously keep the uh the, the snow and cold to myself uh grew up in it, used to it, and uh, uh for those who like when I ever talk to people from the states they're always talking about oh i haven't ridden in like in like four weeks, and I'm like four weeks, try four months uh, <laughs> with yeah uh, with cold yeah. Um, but uh, that's what hockey season's for. But uh, um, I call you up today, Dave, because uh, you're a guy who is uh, probably every bit as much responsible for me having the show than uh, than Ricky Carmichael, James Stewart, Jeremy McGrath, or uh, uh, Matt Maladden or any of those guys, the, the guys that I grew up watching um, as a kid. Um, the way that you speak about the sport, the way you speak about motorsports in general, uh, has captivated uh, audiences for... Um, probably long enough that some of those uh, people are starting to retire themselves. Uh, But uh, (laughs) um, yeah, it's been quite the journey, and uh, I would be uh, remiss if I didn't at least uh, try and get you on the podcast, tell your story, and I'm I'm glad you are able to join me today.
1: Well, I appreciate the opportunity, and it's an honor to be uh, included with that list of names. That's an impressive uh, roster. uh, I, I get these kind of reminders every once in a while just how lucky i've been to get to most often the interview but you know sometimes do features about or just generally cover the careers of such great great racers um, in all, in lots of different disciplines. I mean, if, you know, I've, uh, as hard as I tried throughout my career to uh, to be a motorcycle guy, I kept getting, quote, promoted, unquote, by yeah. networks who, uh, you know, who perceive car racing as being more important than, uh, than motorcycle racing, and under- understandably so. But um you know, mo- most of the time I didn't get a choice about the promotion. If I wanted to keep the job, then I, uh, you know, I was going to go cover car stuff. So, But all my roots are in motorcycling, and so it's a pleasure to get to talk to a guy who does a, mo- uh, a motorcycle podcast.
0: Absolutely, and this being episode 651, uh, much much like you, you spoke about uh, uh, via text or via email, that I, I mentioned some features that you don't uh, yet remember. I'm sure there's some podcasts that people uh, bring up to me every once in a while that I barely remember. A lot of this stuff is, uh, I wouldn't say disposable, but it's always sort of on to the next podcast, so to speak, if, if you kind of follow me on that.
1: Well, I do, and, and I've always thought that it's a little bit like racing in that regard, mm-hmm. um, if you spend very much time contemplating, you know, what you've done in the past, with with the exception of analyzing it for mistakes or things you can do better to enable you to go faster, um, you know, if you spend much time rusting on your laurels, people are going to start passing you by pretty quick. So uh, it's always better to be looking ahead, way ahead.
0: Absolutely, both on the motocross track and in life. I think that's uh, that's just good sound advice. Um, so let's uh, like everyone has this story. Where if you're in motorcycles, if you if you're passionate about it, it it always starts with one. It always has that. Everyone has that story of how they romantically fell in love with these two wheel. Um. Rocket ships that we just we dream about we, we drool over, and uh, in a lot of ways it 's why we do what we do and, and uh, I think uh, one of the interviews that I, I looked up from from you is that you continued to uh, announce and continue to do TV gigs because that 's what got you to your next motorcycle that you 'd get to buy, and that 's no different than uh, whether i 'm doing podcasts or laying bricks it 's all driving towards uh, another uh, another steed to put in the stable. Um, where does that uh, passion start for you you 're in Fairfield, Iowa. Uh, probably not looking at uh, doing radio yet, but definitely interested in motorcycles.
1: Yeah, and the, the two came pretty close together. It's been long enough ago that I can't exactly pinpoint you know which which moment came first. I think I was a sophomore in high school
0: okay.
1: when I did my first radio broadcast, and there's a story behind that if you want to hear it. Um, and it was about the same age or about the same time that I started riding, but I don't remember where that urge came from. I can't, I mean, I didn't sit around and read motorcycle magazines. There was, there, I had zero motorcycle infra, uh, influence in my life. My parents told me that if I brought a motorcycle home, I could go find another place to live, <laughs> um, I got, I got which is part. also a story because they there were good as their word. Um, but I had this friend whose dad was a car mechanic and the friend had a fifty six Ford with a fast motor and it was a pretty hot routed car. And his dad built him a mini bike, but he didn't care anything about it because he had a car. And so I ended up sort of inheriting the mini bike but it had to stay at his house because I couldn't ride it home, and it was it was just a little home built, sort of maybe half a step uh, above a lawnmower motor affair. I like it. Probably not street legal by any of today's standards, but I this was it. you know a little town in Iowa in in uh, the early '60s, so nobody was too picky about you know turn signals. But um, I wrote it all the time. Wrote it all over, wrote it in the dirt, wrote it on the pavement, just thought it was wonderful and dreamed of the day when I could have a real motorcycle. But where the you know, where where that what the seed of that was, I have no idea. I don't and 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 I I relate that to another strange thing that I really can't explain again no motorized activity background in my family certainly no car racing fans and yet one of my early memories is a family camping trip to a lake twenty miles down the road on memorial day weekend and while everybody else was off swimming in the lake i was in the in the car trying to tune in the radio broadcast of the indy five hundred I was fascinated by Sid Collins and Freddie Agabation and, and all the great names of the you know, the the sixties who were well this would have been fifties I guess, who were racing then and I have no idea where that what the impetus for that was, but I have a very clear memory of, of doing that and did it for years. Listened to the race broadcast until I was, gosh, I don't know, probably until I got my job covering racing, because I just thought it was fascinating, so I'm not sure that answers your question, but uh, both of those interests kind of came out of the blue, I guess it was just a gift of some sort.
0: Absolutely. I think I, I totally do connect with that because probably something that I picked up on that a lot of my other friends who did not go into, uh, get, go on to have any interest in broadcasting was the, the local announcers at, whether it be, uh, uh, at hockey games or at, uh, at motocross races, I always like, like, Picked out which which guys I really enjoyed listening to, which guys just seemed to captivate an audience, and and uh, just that that like sort of uh, the power that comes with that, the ability to uh, paint the picture for someone who doesn't get to see it. Uh, I, I'm old enough to have w- listened to a lot of football games on the radio back when uh, uh, the Canadian Football League used to run local blackouts. You couldn't watch a home game on TV, so. Uh, yeah. Yeah, so actually I actually had to watch the game, listen to the games on the radio. So I think that's where I fell in love with with broadcasting in general, just the 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 beauty of that. Um, how how does uh, a, an interest in flat track and actually hold, holding a, a national uh, pro license in flat track turn itself into uh, um, calling these races and, and actually getting into the broadcast booth? Like, how smooth of the transition was that for you? And like me, did you realize that maybe you were better talking about it than doing it?
1: <laughs> you you got that right. Uh <laughs> national professional license is uh, uh is technically accurate but it's a uh, a grand inflation of uh of my status in in the flat track world. Okay. Um again, I really don't know why it was a flat track that appealed to me. Again, I'm careening around on this little mini bike and then um there were there was a there were there was a group of guys in town who had Harley Sportsters, and this would have been in sixty three or four. I graduated from high school in sixty four, so that was the approximate time frame. And believe it or not, back then a Harley Sportster was fast. It was probably the fastest production motorcycle street bike that you could buy. Um uh, it it goes the same speed today fifty years later yeah. Um, you know but back then it was fast there there weren't a lot of fast motorcycles and i was always intrigued by those guys uh, i didn't really know any of them i knew who they were so that was sort of in the back of my mind and then i turned eighteen i bought my first bike it was a terrible terrible motorcycle it was uh... an enfield indian which was a royal enfield um, made by the Enfield Rifle Company, a British motorcycle, right. and it had an Indian badge on it as kind of the last throes of Indians' efforts to you know to to remain alive. Um, so it was you know there was nothing Indian about it except the little logo on the gas tank, and it was okay. instead of, a, a poorly built British 700cc twin, big motorcycle for a first bike. But it was just horrible. Had Lucas Electric, wouldn't run. It was just, you know, it was just an awful motorcycle. It did get me kicked out of the house when I brought it home. Fantastic. Um, dad gave me the heave ho, and uh, so I lived in my '53 uh, Mercury on the north side of the Fairfield Square, next to the motorcycle, which would never run. Um, and, but then, you know, I mean, this story could go on forever. But long story short. I realized that the uh, ticket for admission into the world of those previously mentioned cool guys was to have a sportster. So I saved my money and got a sportster and fell in with that crowd. And one of the things that they were big on was flat track racing. So that really was kind of my first formal introduction to it. And Later on, we would ride our sportsters to... Uh, the Dirt Track Nationals that were within riding distance, which for us was about 500 miles. But we had jobs; we had to be back, you know, on mm-hmm. Monday or Tuesday at the latest. So, what, what um, job
0: did you do? If you don't mind me asking, like, what, I'd love to know. Well, I, of, well, what I was you're working in the radio station. Sorry,
1: for the most part, yeah, I had. Uh, I. I, I, I this The short version of priv the aforementioned story is that my dad wanted me to be a football player, and I was a terrible football player, so okay. I was sitting on the bench with an injured knee uh, on a cold rainy Tuesday night when the sophomores played and supporting the team with my presence and I look up and realize that the classmate of mine is sitting in the uh press box with his cute girlfriend. And he's, it works, it's nice and warm and dry, and he's announcing the football game. Like and that was when the light first went on, that announcing might be better than actually doing in the case of football. Um, and so I inquired and found out that the way you get the job of announcing the games is to join the Speakers Club, which I did uh and turned out I was pretty good at it won medals at contests and stuff like that and one of the things that the speakers club did to reinforce what a small town environment this is um w- they took over the local radio station for an hour every saturday morning for the voice of FHS Fairfield High School I like and we did school news and sports and silly stuff and you know i mean it was just typical with you, the kind of radio you would expect a sixteen year old kid to do yes um, but apparently they thought of, but part of what I think was the voice, which is just you know a god given gift uh helped out with thirty years of uh supporting the sponsors when uh, when tobacco companies were spending a lot of money on racing um, fortunately appear to have escape, escaped from that habit uh, unharmed uh, no more smoking and no ill effects but anyway Good. um I, you know, they asked me if I wanted a job, and I said, sure, so I became the late afternoon disc jockey at the age of 16, so, you know, I had this radio thing going on, um, and I worked there off and on for, gosh, I don't know, 10, 12 years, I'd worked there a while, and then get fired and then work there a while and quit and then work there a while and go find something better. And it was just, you know, it was always kind of a fallback. So that was the job that typically I needed to get back to when we rode to the nationals at Indianapolis or Sedalia. Peoria was the first national dirt track race I ever saw. Um, there was a road race in Iowa back then, at a track called Greenwood that's no longer there. Um, so that was, you know, that was kind of my introduction to big league racing. And we were big fans of the Harley Davidson flat track team because we rode Harleys. Yeah. And um, so that was, uh, there was a lot going on right then that helped to shape my future. Um, one of my jobs was to announce the uh, high school games on the radio. So that's where I learned how to do play by play. Uh, that, that group of guys evolved into a motorcycle club and we built a racetrack, a scrambles track. This was before there was motocross. It was a graded, uh, oiled back when you could do that to control dust before the EPA, you know, banned that. A great racetrack, really fast and, and, uh, very, very popular. And I, you know, because I was the radio guy, I started announcing the the races. So now I'm doing broadcast coverage. I'm doing public address, which is a very different thing. Um And I'm not thinking about any of that. I'm just learning as I go. And then one day, by circuitous route, we returned to your question about the national racing license. Uh One day we were out building bleachers And the hot sun, and watching everybody else go around having fun on their dirt bikes. And I had a a woods bike. We called them boonie bikes because in Iowa, the woods were the boonies, and the bike that you rode in the woods was a boonie bike. And this was a Boltaco Matador, which was a popular enduro bike of the day. Okay. Two stroke, 250, four speed, good bike. Uh, updated to a five speed later on. And, um, we decided, well, we ought to go out there and run around too. We don't have race bikes, but we ought to go out there and slide around the corners. So we did. And I thought it was the coolest thing ever. Uh, and so, you know, in the span of a year, I had gone from never having been on a racetrack to having a Boltaco Persang which the motocross people will recognize because that was, you know, the bike that Jim Pomeroy really won the first, uh, won the Spanish Grand Prix. That's um, right. I don't know, was he the first American ever to win a Grand Prix? Does he that was. sound right?
0: Yes, he was. That's that... what
1: I thought. Yeah, two two 250, uh, 250 class in Spain, if I recall correctly. Well, that would have been the motocross version of the same motorcycle in the flat track trim um and I, and i don't i don't know if they called them the motocross or a hang or not i don 't remember but they they that was the um the designation of that particular bull taco and then Ronnie Raw won the flat track race in the Astrodome back before the supercross came. They used to run uh a short a, a tt on Friday night which had jumps but it was nothing like Supercross. First. And a uh short track on Saturday night and it was huge. They have thirty five forty thousand people. Um and Raw Ronnie Raw won the national short track on a And so they did a sort of a commemorative version of that called the uh the Astro short for Astrodome. Well that was the bike we raced and my friend was good. He was fast. He was destined to be an expert. I was slow, but had a lot of fun. I really liked doing it to the extent that I bought that aforementioned novice license from the AMA and uh, so solely for the purpose of running sanctioned, quote, professional, unquote, half-mile dirt tracks, Mostly in Illinois, the next state over. There weren't, there were a few in Iowa, but not very many. Right. So I would go to the racetrack, run four, they, they would have in the novice class 150 novices racing for 12 starting spots in the main event. So and they'd, run 15, they'd run 15 10 man heats and the winners of the 12 fastest heats made it to the main. So you could win your heat and not make it to the main event. So, I mean, I had no, you know, there was never a chance in hell I was going to make a main event. I would run four laps of practice, my four-lap heat, and that'd be it. But it was worth it. I mean, I just, it was the coolest sensation ever Mm -hmm. to go down the straightaway all tucked in on the gas tank, get to the end of the straightaway, throw the thing sideways to the extent that, you know, a 250 and a half mile slide sideways, than they would, and, you know, put your foot down and, and steer it with the throttle. I mean, it was just wonderful. And I did it for five years, I guess. Uh, anybody who follows flat track knows that if you're a fifth-year novice, you're pretty much a joke. But that was, that was me, but I was definitely having fun. So that was a long, long answer to how I got to be the flat track guy.
0: Fair enough. Well, uh, you're, you're talking to a guy who's been in the in the B class in Canada since 2003. So um, uh, if, I can relate. If, yeah, if, if a if a if a, a five year novice is bad, I don't want to know what the people start uh, talking about me behind my back. As far as that goes. Um, but uh, maybe that's that's a slightly attributed to the amount of time I've spent in the broadcast booth as well. Mine came across on, on a, a, literally a, a dislocated shoulder and an empty announcing booth with uh, with a microphone ready to go. And uh, I did my best uh, impression of uh, um, Larry Myers and those guys to try and see what I could make happen for my motocross friends here locally. And uh, yeah, I guess the rest is history. But how? That's cool. You uh, yeah.
1: you want to you want to hear the story about Larry Myers got in the announcing business? I
0: love it. Yeah, go for it.
1: Larry was working for High Point, which was at the time uh, the state of the art boot for motocross. Right. Um, this would have been in the early to mid seventies, maybe. And Bob Hanna was the you know the the big High Point guy. And High Point was a subsidiary of Penton, which built very good motorcycles back in that period. They were uh, precursors of KTMs. Kids today probably have never heard of the mark. It didn't last long, but John Penton was really, uh, an important guy in terms of American racing history because until he came along, everybody was riding big, heavy bikes in the dirt. And he was convinced that the way to go fast was to have a small, light, relatively powerful motorcycle that was a lot more maneuverable than the big heavy stuff. And he was an enduro rider primarily. Um so he went to what became KTM and had them build a motorcycle for him, put his name on it, it was called the Penton and brought it to America and had a lot of racing success including some motocross uh success and then one thing led to another and eventually the Penton mark went away i suppose their biggest uh accomplishment in life would have been uh all the medals that they won at the back then ISDT now ISDE used to be international six days trials now they call it an enduro Mm-hmm. But they won lots and lots of medals. John's boys were, you know, were racers, and, and uh, so anyway, I, I digress. Larry Myers worked for John, and uh, uh, at the peak of the Penton business, John started an accessory company um, called High Point. And boots were their big thing and Larry Myers was the boot guy. So he would show up at the motocross race to, you know, sell his product and service all the guys who were using uh, high point boots and he would come up to the announcer's stand because I was doing PA for a lot of motocross races back then, okay. and I would ask him questions about what's going on, what's, what's Hannah up to today, what's he saying about the racetrack, who's he thinks the guy to beat, et cetera. And Larry knew everything. I mean, he, had, he knew everything there was to know about motocross. And so after about four or five go-rounds of this, we were at the 125 Grand Prix at Mid-Ohio, which, again, most kids won't remember, but it, I think it might have been the first. I uh, know Carlsbad probably was first. It was probably a, It was certainly the first time they ran a 125 GP in America.
0: Yeah, um, I think so, you're
1: right. Gaston Royer, I believe, was the winner. And um, I said to Myers, you know, I turned down flat track announcing jobs to do motocross because guys like P. Widener, the promoter there, are good guys, and and they really want me to do it, Um, but you'd be as good at this as I am, just in terms of announcing, and, and your knowledge base is way better than mine. You ought to just take this job, and I'll go do flat track races, and everybody will be better off, and he said, okay, and so I told P. Widener that from now on, Larry Myers is the guy you need to hire for your announcer, and... Whenever anybody called me to do a motocross race, I'd just give Myers' phone number, and that's how he got into that business, and sort of like me, that eventually led him into the TV business, and uh, we ended up working together on a lot of shows. He's a good guy, really good guy.
0: Absolutely, and, and you know, a, a lot of times you guys almost became synonymous. It's hilarious that you'd meet in a, uh, a setting where it was uh, PA announcing and uh, sort of him just feeding you some uh, some helpful tidbits and uh, what, what's going on out there on the track. Um, but actually, the funny thing is, is that even still today, a lot of some of sometimes the most knowledgeable, in the know people in the pits are those. Um, like rider support guys that are are sort of in the trucks. They're the fly on the wall that's sort of like, oh, I heard, like, uh, they just happened to overhear the conversation of how bad Ken Rockson's arm is, or uh, back in the day how bad Bob Hanna's leg would have been, you know what I mean, sort of things like that.
1: It's it's one of the most important tools that anybody in that business or any form of reporting, journalism, etc., the most important thing that you can have is reliable sources who will tell you the truth and tell you when you can and can't use it they trust you enough that they know that if they tell you something that's off the record that you won't you know use it and, and get them in trouble right. um, because you can't always believe what racers tell you, believe it or not, uh, I'm not going to name names, but I've had a couple of times when racers told me something I absolutely knew was not true uh just and and their motivation for it wasn't like it wasn't that they were trying to be you know jerks to me uh it was important to their team to have that be the official story um what I'm had to do with with whether motorcycle racing motorcycles were carrying lead ballast to meet minimum weight and the rider you know looked me in the eye and swore repeatedly no 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 our bike does not have added weight Well, I knew it did I'd seen it <laughs> but you know that um but the, so the, the the point of that is not so much the writer who, who you know who didn't. I mean, it's easy to find people who won't tell you the truth. PR people have a vested interest in you telling the story their way. Yes. Uh, teams, manufacturers, you know, everybody's got their own axe to grind. So having people that you can trust and know will tell you the truth in any kind of racing is a very valuable tool. I still get confused with Myers, and he gets the same thing. Somebody will come up to me and say. I can remember when you used to do such and such and such and such and I you know I knew in three words that that wasn't something I did that was something Myers did but we did so much stuff together that um, you know and in the same sort of genres that uh, people people get us mixed up I consider it a compliment
0: Absolutely, a bit of a dynamic do in a lot of people's minds, I'm sure. Um, like when when it comes to uh, announcing, uh, like were you like you're obviously you're, if you're doing uh PA announcing, you're play by play. Like, what where does like your um like do you prefer play by play or do you prefer to be the color guy?
1: Uh that's an interesting question. I've never. Been I've, I've I've been the color guy a lot less than I've been the play-by-play guy, uh, partly because you want your color analyst to be a real expert, and I'm not a real expert. Um, I know I, I did I did I was the color guy. I know one year for Supercross, I think it was right. on ESPN, and Myers was the play-by-play guy and it could have easily been the other way around and I don't really know how it was decided that we were going to do it that way but I'm not qualified to be the expert analyst for Supercross um you know the, the you, expert means exactly what it says I know a lot about I know a little about a lot of different kinds of racing so when mm-hmm. you put it all together I know a lot, but in any given discipline, I don't think I'm qualified to be an expert analyst. Um, it's easier because you don't have to carry the show. You know, you don't have to maintain the the flow and listen to the producer and director in your ear, and you know uh worry about the timing getting to commercials and all the other sort of technical things that are involved in uh in that business but um yeah you know they're they're both good they're both they're both a lot better than having an honest job
0: absolutely i agree hey any, any, like uh i'll spend eight ten hours in the announcing booth on a sunday uh and and enjoy that over uh an eight-hour day laying bricks any day. Uh, to, be, to be completely honest, absolutely <laughs> love it. Um, hey, like, bricklaying is a tough way to make a buck, uh, but the, the problem is that you make them in a hurry. Uh, it's a bit of a trap that way. I'm not going to get into that. But, um, like... What, I, what, I've
1: had I've had real jobs, and oh, yeah. uh, I have great appreciation for people who do real jobs. Uh, I don't make any uh, bones about the fact that television is a pretty cool way to uh, to make a living because I mean it's not that you don't work hard you yeah. do, but I think in most cases, certainly in my case, you're getting to do what you absolutely love um and getting paid for it so you know bring it on short beach working in the tractor factory i can remember that
0: oh absolutely i i find when when i when i do like i'm at a race and i'm covering a race um (laughs) the reality of it being a hard day doesn't really sink in until like you actually go to leave and you're like wow i've been here since 7 a.m and it's two o'clock in the morning and i'm just just finishing up my things now like it it's it, it, in that, it becomes a, a hard day's work, but uh, like you're just enjoying it so much that in the moment you don't seem to, uh, to, to stress about it too much as far as just the hard work uh, that's involved. Um, I, I come to understand that uh, even though you did, uh, like after 1975, when you historically, uh, as you would say, lucked into uh, getting a spot on TV... In between those uh, TV spots, you still did PA announcing. You still like, uh, like kept your sort of um, like kept your options open. And honestly, like as, as you as well as I know, if, like you can get booted out of the TV industry rather quickly. Uh, you always had, uh, I wouldn't say a backup plan, but you always stayed busy with that. And I think that's uh, something that not only kept you sharp, but also allows you to uh, see some of the uh, young up and comers. Um, coming up through the ranks long before you'd see them on a on a on a TV broadcast. I
1: I didn't get all of that. Um, but was it about getting to see other see racers coming up through the ranks? Is that what you asked me?
0: Well, that, but also the fact that you did uh, like PA announcing in addition to your TV bits, like uh, TV Oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah,
1: yeah Got gotcha, you. Gotcha. Sorry for the long winded I, I definitely kept i I definitely kept my my options open it i had, uh, in nineteen seventy five I was working for the american motorcycle association uh It became obvious to me after my five years as a novice when I added up the take and realized I'd made thirty five dollars as a professional racer that I wasn't going to make my living doing that right so I got a real job working for the a m a um in the racing department riding press releases and doing promotional work. And then on weekends, um, not as part of my job, but basically as a sideline, I would ride to um, the dirt dirt track nationals mostly, some motocross, but mostly nationals, and be the PA announcer. Um, So it was a dream job. I started that in 1972. In '75, we went to Daytona for the Daytona 200, and uh, my boss ABC Wide World of Sports showed up at the last minute to broadcast the race and they didn't have an expert analyst and my boss looked the guy and looked the producer in the eye and said you should use Dave he's got a lot of electronic media experience right I had worked in a 250 watt daytime radio station in Iowa yeah, so I was Dave's uh, r- r-
0: Dave's record go round.
1: yeah exactly exactly so well, the producer didn't really care one way or another. He just wanted to get that show done and get out of town. So he sent me down to record a forty he said in forty go down there and look in that camera, and in forty five seconds uh tell somebody who doesn't know anything about motorcycle racing why they should watch the Daytona two hundred and I,, went, well, I can do that. Ladies and gentlemen, this afternoon an international field of jockey-sized athletes have gathered here at the famed Daytona International Speedway. They will hurtle around those high banks faster than Richard Petty, inches from the concrete wall, protected only by their space-age crash helmets and a thin layer of cowhide. This is a spectacle you do not want to miss. Oh. And it was 43 and a half seconds, and the guy said, well, you're, you're hired. So my first television show was abc wide world of sports which at the time was the most important sports show in the world this was before SportsCenter existed espn had not been invented yet yeah. and i was stood up there beside keith jackson who was one of their legendary anchors and uh and did that show but even then uh, you know that was not I didn't look at that as a door opening on a television career. I just thought, well, that was a cool thing to do and get an extra paycheck for going to Daytona because I thought I had the best job in the world. Well, then, another influential guy in my life that the motorcycle people would be less familiar with, but the stock car people know by name, is Ken Squire. Um, He, long story short, was producing some motorcycle races for CBS, in the following year, and he asked me if I wanted to be the analyst, and I said yes. So I did a half a dozen shows in '76, and then maybe a half a dozen more in '77. And uh, by 197 or 1981, I guess it was, he and I had become friends. We were both working for Motor Racing Network in Daytona. Um, he had an idea for a show. That was going to be a weekly highlight show covering all different kinds of racing called Motor Week. And he was going to be the host. Well, it turned out his CBS contract was uh, sufficiently strong by the time he got ready to put the idea on the air that he couldn't host the show. Um, but he thought it made business sense to become the executive producer. So he asked me if I wanted to host it. And I said, sure. Uh, by then I, my AMA job had kind of, there'd been some changes in the AMA and I was ready to move on. So I loaded my motorcycles in my old used telephone company truck and drove to Atlanta to do Motor Week Illustrated on Ted Turner's Superstation WTBS with a 13 week deal, um, and if that didn 't happen, then i didn 't have a plan B at that point. I knew i couldn 't make a living announcing races, but I had kept all my all my p a gigs just in case so i 'd have a little bit of income coming in right and uh turned out that I ended up making my living in for forty two or forty three years i guess uh in the television business, so it all worked out
0: that it did and like you said um, a, a ton of different gigs that you've had with television um, and like just your your ability like I think I think this is something that a lot of great uh, call guys and great um, media members have in their quiver when it comes to the time where they just need to absolutely throw down uh, a line that like maybe it's not even rehearsed maybe they hadn't even thought about it but when the camera says go they happen to spit out something like like you just did something pretty legendary is that something that you've worked on or is that something maybe you were just born with? Well it
1: works a couple of ways uh, and that's a good question by the way um, Ken Squire, again, was very much a mentor to me. There's a fight. And the first time I met him, um, was at a Motor Racing Network shows NASCAR race. Uh, I wasn't working for MRN yet, but he was. He was the anchor. And I think it was probably at the Daytona 500. <clears throat> I think that's another long story as to why I was down there but it was it had it had to do with motorcycle racing. I wasn't there for the 500. Uh but I met Squire and when I w- walked in to be introduced to him he was sitting there frantically scribbling on a legal pad and uh I said I didn't I didn't mean to you know they introduced us and I said I, I don't want to interrupt your work it's obvious that you're doing something pretty important there and he said You're an announcer, right? I said, yeah. And he said, do you do this? And he held up the legal pad, and it was filled with little tiny handwritten letters. It was filled with phrases to describe stock cars going around Daytona International Speedway. Hmm. Different different word usages to emphasize this or you know painting those word pictures that you alluded to earlier yeah. when when you know when the when the when the listener doesn't get to see it you need to fill in you know the information they're not getting yeah. and the point of that and I you know I mean I I learned the lesson instantly I got my legal pad very quickly thereafter uh and started doing the same thing the point being homework, you know, I mean, for every hour that you're on the air, if you're not doing a couple, three hours of homework, you're sloughing off. You know, you're not you're not working hard enough. Right. So that's one way that those, you know, wonderful turns of a phrase come to you. You you anticipate the situation and you try to have the words there and, and ready and and hope you get a chance to use them. The other way is that they just come to you like lightning bolts. Um, I've heard songwriters say that, you know, they'll wake up in the morning and the idea will not only be there, but the song, the, the song in its, in, in its entirety will be there. It's already written in his head. Right. Um, or her head doesn't happen very often. Happened to me the, the most memorable time it happened to me. Um, we used to do a show called Saturday Night Thunder on ESPN okay. and it was basically USAC Sprints and Midgets. Um and I had never seen a USAC Midget race the first time I did that uh that show. And this is a little bit of sort of inside baseball story, but we were doing what they call the pre production for it was first time I've worked with the crew, first time I've met the producer. You know, I'm brand new, uh never seen a race. So everybody's kind of like, well, I hope this guy's going to figure out figure out what he's doing here. And somehow, in the in the rush to get everything done, they had failed to get a voiceover for the show open, which is the you know the wild animation with lightning bolts and thunderclaps and race cars flying around and going upside down. You know, every show has one. Um, and this, it needed a script to tell people, you know, what you're about to watch. And nobody had written a script. Uh, they just it just slipped through the crack. So now we're, you know, an hour away from airing the first show, and I'm recording some other stuff, and we get all done, and I'm ready to leave, and somebody said, what about the open? And uh, I said, "What? what's, what's the open? <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. They said, oh, God, uh, we've got this 30-second open that, you know, need, needs a, Needs a script and a voice, and I said, "Oh, okay." I have one um, of those. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> and let's let's see what we can do about coming up with the second of those two yeah. things. And uh, I said, well, play it." And they played it, and I thought, "Well, that's pretty cool." And I said, uh, "Play it again," and they played it again. And I said, uh, "Give me a minute," <clears throat> and it was the word about the, the entire it wasn't long it was 30 seconds, yeah, 30 of script, seconds by, yeah. but the entire script was just there i mean it was in my head from i don't know where you know again yeah. it was just a gift that came down and i wrote it down on my legal pad and i said uh okay i think i got it you want to record the rehearsal cuz sometimes it's better than the real thing and they said sure so they hit the record button and the thing rolled and uh I was uh they have big hearts and a whole lot of horsepower, brave souls and the will to win. They are the local heroes, and they live for Saturday night, and it just fit perfectly. I mean it was just you know if yeah. somebody had worked on it for two hours, it wouldn't have been any better and no, they, they were sure. like wow that's <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's <laughs> really good. I <laughs> said, Well, thank you, and never let on that you know that was the first time in my life that it ever happened. Yeah, don't ask me to do it again. Yeah, I'll just, yeah, I'll just let them think that that's the way it always works. <laughs> but, you know, it's, again, long answer to your question. The, oh, the sure. news comes from a lot of different places and arrives in a lot of different forms, and part of the secret is uh, recognizing it when it when it comes, A, and B, not just relying on it to be there. You know, you, you do the work and then if the news comes and hands you a gift, it's just that. But you gotta, you gotta do the homework. The other way to get a great, you know, bit of, bit of material is to steal it. And I'll tell you a quick Ken Squire story. Go oh, it. Another quick Ken Squire story. We fast forward from the day when he was my uh, legal pad racing phrase mentor to him being the anchor of a TBS stock car race at uh, Richmond Fairgrounds in Virginia, and I'm going to be in the what they call the Pitt Communications Center, and it's my first live NASCAR race, uh, and I worked on my 32nd hello for... A week. I mean, I have the best thirty seconds in the history of racing television written and memorized and ready to go. Perfect. So we have the production meeting, and the producer says, "I want to go around the room and everybody, you know, guys, you guys that are in the open, tell me what you're going to say. Can you go first because you open the show? Well, oh, I'm still working on mine, Fred. Um, I'll have a, I'll have it ready, but I don't have it ready yet. Okay, Dave." And Dave does his thirty seconds, greatest thirty seconds in the history of television. Of course. Uh, pit reporter one, pit reporter one says his thing. Pit reporter two, expert analyst, whoever it was, I don't remember, uh... did his bit. And Fred said, "Okay, fine, away we go." <laughs> when we went on the air, Squire, the, you know, they do the open. They come to Squire, and he does my thirty seconds. Almost word for word, <laughs> and I'm sitting there listening to this, thinking, "Oh my God, what am I going to do?" And I don't remember what I did. I obviously came up with a new thirty seconds worth on short notice. Yeah. I went back to the after the race, ready to kill him. I was going to say. He said, uh, Did you, did you learn anything today? And I said, Oh, I certainly did. I learned a great deal today and, uh, and I appreciate it. (laughs) So I never hesitated to steal good stuff, you know, from others after that, uh, knowing, knowing full well that in the greater scheme of things, what was stolen from me and what I stole from others would all kind of balance out because we're all doing the same thing.
0: Oh, absolutely! Uh, sometimes, like when I do uh, a PA announcement, uh, like the whole like the the revs are up and the gate is down, like like oh, you're stealing that from so and so. I'm like, yeah, and he stole it from that guy. So, uh, like, it's yeah, like, yeah.
1: There's yeah. not much, you know. There's only so many words in the English language, and yes. they've all been used, you know, pretty effectively by somebody over time. So the chances that you're going to come up with something brand new and original are pretty close to zero.
0: For sure. I totally just want to connect with what you'd mentioned just earlier with the fact that like sometimes I'll be in a rush and like I have no time to prepare for a podcast. I got to call the guy in five minutes, just got home from work and I end up throwing down uh, just a lights out interview. I was funny. They were funny. Everything was on point. It's great. Other times when I try and do the exact same thing and I can't pull one word answers out of somebody. Um, maybe it was because I was talking to Michael Lessie. But um, but that could be <laughs> – but honestly, a lot of – sometimes like I, I – I, especially earliest in my, my podcast, I was very dependent on that. Like, oh yeah, I'm good at this. I, I'll just – I'll – I'll snap my fingers and and, and funny things will happen. And uh, it it isn't always that way. Like I, I, a lot of times that uh, if I don't have that sort of like kind of a trap door that if I go to, if, if, I do end up with like a. It was supposed to be a fifteen-minute podcast. We're five minutes into this. I've asked all my questions. Like, oh shit. Um, Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. But uh, it's it's cool. Like you kind of tackled it
0: in in both sides of that, and uh, like being not only prepared but also allowing uh, organically some just some cool conversation to happen, and and know that uh, you do have a little bit of talent uh, up there uh, where the lightning strikes.
1: It's, it's, it's another reminder of the importance of doing your homework. Um, there's no substitute for it. And one of the great things that happens is when you do that, and especially if you're, if you're beginning and people are just getting to know who you are and what you're about and what, you know, the people that may or may not have an influence on your craft as you go forward and try to have a career, Uh, you know, if if that's the way your mind works, again, I never, I never, I never set out to have a career. It just sort of fell in my lap. And then once it started, um, you know, I used to worry about the ratings. Uh, and then I realized pretty quickly that, you know, my performance one way or another doesn't seem to move that needle. Mm -hmm. So I'm not going to worry about the ratings. I'm just going to worry about whether I get renewed, you know. That way I only got to worry once a year or once every 2 years and that like, you know, I just kept getting renewed. So it was never a career path, but back to my point, um when you're when you're beginning and you're making your first impression on people, if you get the reputation as a guy who does his homework, it really stands you in good stead. Uh people that you call to invite to come on your podcast are going to be a lot more likely to say yes if they have a respect for the fact that you do your homework and you're prepared. Totally. You ask good questions. You've got a reputation as a guy who knows his stuff, um, as opposed to just some Joe Blow that wants to do a podcast. So it pays off to uh, you know to be prepared. The the, the, the lightning bolt moments, the organic uh, kinds of opportunities like you talk about you can't prepare for that anyway um you know they they either come or they don't and uh you know when they do it, it it's a blessing but there's i've never found a, a a formula to make that magic happen on command it just it just happens and you, you know you're lucky enough to be there when it does
0: Absolutely, I totally agree, and uh, so with, uh, we, we, I think we're, we're going to have to push it past the hour mark, and you were skeptical that we'd get there, but I knew we would, Dave. Um, the <laughs> fact that we've had you on the show for 53 minutes, just shy of, uh, and we haven't even yet gotten to um, Speed Vision and Two Wheel Tuesday, which, like I said at the beginning of this podcast, you are mostly to blame for making most of my girlfriends over the year years watch motocross uh, races, motocross videos, knowing they—they uh, they know more about the privateers than most die-hard motocross racers do or motocross fans do because of my obsession with it. It's completely your fault, um, and <laughs> it's—it has—I think it has a lot to do with one specific skill that I think that you have, and sort of blow, uh, kind of blow smoke up your ass too much. But the fact is your cadence and tone and like everything that when you do it's not uh, like you're a phenomenal play-by-play guy but your highlight package uh cadence is second to none i don't know what it is the when you would do like the basically a, a short breakdown of uh the 250 main event from indy 2000 where uh, in, uh jeremy mcgrath goes uh what, one yet another supercross race like you're the the cadence for that you're amazing at just letting at using theater of the mind so that people thought they'd watch the entire race in a 45 second clip. How the heck do you do that? Well,
1: well I don't know. Um, again, it's a it's a talent that I became aware of pretty quick or pretty early on, and probably I mean I guess when you think about it, it makes sense. The first TV show I did. Was a highlight show. Right. Um, you know, we covered all kinds of racing, and we basically did one to two minute highlight packages from everything imaginable—from Indy cars and stock cars to you know boat races to motocross. Um, but I figured out pretty quickly that I that I really liked doing that. That uh, I was pretty good at it. I had a way with words that worked well in that little confined format. Um, and I was also good, you know, nine times out of ten, if you're the announcer, you're just going to describe some video that somebody else edited. You don't have any hand in deciding what gets used and what doesn't. But I've been fortunate enough to learn a little bit about editing and a little bit about storytelling and right. and was able on that first show to kind of influence what shots got used and then that way you you you've got more control over the story. So I think combining those two things and then just getting to practice it every week—that's um, probably the answer to your question. It probably came as a result of repetition and practice uh, more than anything else. But I I I've always I've always viewed that as one of my favorite things to do. So that's probably part of the answer as well.
0: Well, fair enough, and I, they're one of my favorite parts of just about everyone, especially if it was a heat race or something along those lines. There'd often be like a small clip of somebody having some tough luck, and and you'd say something like, "And looks like uh, uh, Davey Yuzik's gonna have to go to that uh, last chance qualifier, and he's not gonna be happy about that," or something along, like, "Your your delivery's better than mine," but like it just. Those little tidbits really they they were funny, they were informative, and they I think they really kept people hooked and uh, um, anyone who listens to this is going to connect with stuff like that um, the the speed Vision side of things, I believe you started there in nineteen ninety eight um and then Two Wheel Tuesday was a weekly show that I don't think started until 1999, maybe 2000. Um, and I think like that was a specifically, obviously, Two Wheel Tuesday was dedicated strictly to motorcycles. Um, and then after in 2003, you ended up with Wind Tunnel. Uh, which I, at the beginning of the podcast we kind of talked about how you sort of got pulled further and further away from motorcycles, which is of course what you love. Uh, I'd, I'd say probably what you're, you're closest to, but the reality is is that uh, um, money talks, bullshit walks, and uh, there's more money in in uh, uh, in car racing. Like so, what, like was were you ever conflicted as far as? Um, like what you covered, like was it kind of bittersweet to, to get promoted, so to speak, to Wind Tunnel and have to leave Two Wheel Tuesday and in, in uh, with Dave, I think it was, uh, it was Greg White took over that for a short period of time before it eventually died off. Um, tell me a little you bit know, about it, that, that transition.
1: Well, it was you know I mean I I, I had a I did a five year deal with ESPN. Um, I don't remember what year um, early nineties. Um Which was a huge mistake um, the long story short, that was not a good place to be, and I suspect it's even worse today. Um, but when you have a contract, you have a contract you know so you end up uh, I went there to be their motorcycle guy, and uh, network politics dictated that uh, that wasn't to be, and they put me on the NASCAR pre-race show, which ended up being the most popular program on ESPN 2, the new network, the spin-off network that they were forming at the time. Right. I didn't care about that. I didn't change my paycheck any. I wanted to be the motorcycle guy. So I made up my mind, and then, and I got booted off the motorcycle show. It may have been, the I think it was still in the first year. It might have been early in the second year of the contract. So I made up my mind that day that I was leaving at the end of the contract regardless, and I did. And I went to Speed Vision uh, to be their motorcycle guy. And things were just going along great, and I uh, the the shows were pro- the most of the motorcycle stuff was being produced by Chet Burks Productions in Atlanta. I lived in Athens, Georgia. I was close by. Uh, had never been to Speed Vision. Signed my contract over the phone, um, and everything was great. And then and I built a house in Athens, Georgia, and uh, they called me. I hadn't even moved in yet. And they called me and said, well, we've got good news and bad news. And I said, what's that? And they said, well, the, uh, the, uh, the bad news is we're canceling the motorcycle show because it's just not getting very good ratings. And the good news is we're giving you a new show, your own show, that uh, will be called Wind Tunnel, and it's going to be a talk show about all kinds of racing. And I said, oh. Uh, talk show, yeah, live, and I said, "Oh, you mean like a studio show?" Yeah, yeah,
0: you're like I'll the bet David the Letterman are in Charlotte. Yeah,
1: and and they said, "Yeah, in Charlotte," and I thought, "Oh man, I just built a house in Georgia." So I ended up commuting back and forth the whole, you know, run of of windpuff, 11 years back and forth on my motorcycle. I got a lot of good rides in, but um, I had no, you know, I had no, they didn't call me and ask me if I wanted to do this. They called and said, this is your new job. You have a contract that says you're, you know, you're contracted to do this many shows. Very rarely does that contract say what the shows are going to be. Right. They retain the right to decide that, and so they decided it should not be motorcycles. I was bummed, but there wasn't anything I could do about it. No, absolutely. And wind tunnel was a lot of fun. I mean, I, you know, that's one thing. I'd, as much as I love motorcycles and motorcycle racing and covering all that, I also enjoy covering all other kinds of racing. So it wasn't a complete, you know, bad deal.
0: No, for sure, it's, it's it's like kind of like a, a sideways move, and uh, you still had. I think you still had a lot of motorcycle racers on. I think you had a lot of the street bike guys on at the time as well, um, just because of like just how high profile, especially at that point. Uh, like that's in the heyday of, of Nicky Hayden, of course. Our thoughts uh, with him, I, like that—that's a guy that uh, just, we love that guy. But uh, um, just like that particular program was just so influential, I feel it really broadened the spectrum of who could watch that? And and uh, your audience uh, definitely grew. I think the the hardcore motocross or motorcycle fan would felt a little bit jaded, but that's just the way that goes. Is you're kind of you're ours, and all of a sudden you are everyone's to share. Um, and, and honestly, like I kind of connected that in the fact that this last year, like I, I announced football games, I announced Premier League soccer, uh, as well as uh, some hockey, and uh, on top of every single motocross race locally. And people are like, "Well, why are you doing soccer?" I'm like, "Well." Sort of tell you, but if if ESPN called me tomorrow and says they want me to announce soccer for the rest of my days, and there's a paycheck attached to that, I'd probably do it. I'd still race dirt bikes no. in my, in, in my uh, like I'd use that money that I make to go buy dirt bikes and I'd go ride on the weekends. But um, like what I'm announcing doesn't really seem to. Uh, bother me. It's the, the fact that I'm able to use my skills with a microphone to convey my message, and then uh, I usually get a little paycheck for it. And I go go to my local uh, motocross shop and uh, and, and spend uh, spend more more than uh, I should on uh, parts and stuff like that. But you know what I mean? Like it's, it's, uh, <laughs> well, yeah. People,
1: people forget that TV in the end is just a job. It's right. not that much different from any other job. A little more glamorous. Pays a little better, mm-hmm. uh, you know. You get to do some pretty cool things, but in the end, you know, you're working for the man, and the man gets to decide how things uh, how things go and uh, what you do to earn your paycheck.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. And uh, but I, obviously, I loved uh, Wind Tunnel. I love Tool Tuesday as well. Um, but uh, so what would you say was your uh your your favorite gig that you had within uh tv was it uh was it doing the like supercross was it wind tunnel was it uh two wheel tuesday was it hitting up the uh camel supercross rep for a couple extra packs on a saturday night what was it
1: <laughs> well i suppose uh if i could only pick one mm-hmm. um it would be the bike week show that if I remember correctly, it, it ended up being incorporated into Two Wheeled Tuesday I at the so, end. Yeah. Um, that was the show that I, you know, went to Speed Vision to do and it basically was a weekly show in which we just went off some place and uh and rode motorcycles with interesting people and it covered everything from you know racing to street riding uh you know we did a government relations show i mean it if it if it involved motorcycling it was fair game uh with a bit of an emphasis on on racing because you know we all love racing uh so that was that was probably the best gig you know we we went to the location and rode with the people got to do riding in a lot of neat spots with a lot of fun folks and uh yeah I, I can distinctly remember uh when we went to hawaii to do a dual sport ride on the big island um no that's not the big island Kauai. it was on Kauai, okay. which is a gorgeous gorgeous island and we're, thing. we're riding along, you know, down through the uh, through the banana trees on this neat little uh, two track trail, and I'm thinking this is not a bad gig. This, yeah, don't no feel bad
0: for me. This, now. this is a no pretty good day at big, the office. Sale.
1: So, uh, yeah, that uh, that show was probably the most fun of anything that I ever did.
0: Okay, fair enough. Like, I, I imagine that uh, throughout your career, I, I, maybe you can correct me on this, but you, you must have gotten some cool opportunities to ride motorcycles just through some of the connections you'd made within the industry. Did you ever get to, like, uh, like go to, like, a uh, a motocross demo day or like a, like a specific kind of, like, behind the scenes with a specific manufacturer or something like that? Or, like, uh, did you, like any days across I never I never
1: did I never got involved that much in the hardware end of of motorcycling. Mm-hmm. Uh I'm not much of a mechanic. I didn't we you know we didn't do we didn't do bike tests uh per se. There was a there was a show that uh was done in conjunction with Motorcyclist magazine for a while that actually did comparison tests, but i wasn't directly involved in that i was more the host of the show and would throw to you know the testers who would then do their thing Um i got to ride some cool bikes i mean i got to go to italy and and ride a uh... i don't remember what it was which which ducati it was but it was the state-of-the-art ducati at the time you know on the italian roads to do a a bit for uh, for bike week Coincidentally, Ducati. I got uh, <laughs> they were having a uh, it was it was at um, Ducati World Weekend yep. was held at Las Vegas, oh. um, and they called me and said they were going to have a celebrity ride, and did I want to do the celebrity ride?
0: Yeah, you're like, and I kind what, of what anticipated
1: getting... that it was going to be you know, riding out to to Red Rock with uh, you know, the local news anchor or something, and that didn't sound too appealing to me. So I declined. And I got to the and and then fortuitously got to do the Freddie Spencer school, three day road racing school, uh, on the same racetrack. Um and I get the, the, done with the Friday School, which the next day is the start of the Ducati World Weekend. And they said, uh, are you sure you don't want to do the celebrity ride? And I said, well, tell me more about it. I said, well, we've got a... Uh a fleet of uh, 999 SPs over here that uh, were, you know, it's 20-minute sessions. You get 20 minutes on the track, and then you hand off to somebody else, and 20 minutes later they hand it back to you. I went, oh, okay, sure, I'll do that. So that was probably the coolest as far as getting to ride, you know, a cool motorcycle in a cool environment. That was probably the ultimate. Uh, Me on a motocrosser, not a very good fit uh
0: you're <laughs> that, pretty tall that wouldn't guy,
1: have been something anybody would have wanted to watch on tv
0: <laughs> you're a pretty tall guy am i wrong i'm sorry how tall are you
1: uh six three
0: yeah.
1: yeah 200 and too much and, and uh, too much. That, yeah that's I pretty
0: tall for a motocross racer
1: yeah, yeah. Even even Mike Bell was, uh, you know, too tall. Bell was a couple of yeah. three inches shorter than that. But I broke my ankle really badly. Um, I don't know. I was twenty one or twenty two or something, and okay. had a bunch of surgery. And uh, you know, when it was all done, the uh, the doctor said, uh, "I'm not going to tell you what to do, but if you break your ankle again, you're going to end up with a plastic foot." So, I basically didn't ride dirt bikes for most of my riding life. I got back into dirt bikes ten years ago doing dual sport um I wasn't going to quit riding, and I thought, given the risk, you know if I got to choose between riding on the street or riding on the dirt, it makes sense to you know to stick with pavement riding so mm-hmm. that's what I did so a lot of things that I might have tried during my motorcycling lifetime, I just didn't get the opportunity to no complaints, it's just the way it worked out.
0: For sure, yeah, absolutely. Some, sometimes uh, life goes that way. Uh, I'm fortunate that uh, although my arms used to pop off like a Ken doll, they seem to be sticking on uh, quite well lately. And we're going <laughs> to knock on wood that that continues uh, with some regularity. But uh, um, I, I come to understand that you also uh, happen to be uh, have a specific goal with a specific motorcycle, a beautiful 2005 Kawasaki KLR, one of the most sophisticated motorcycles to ever uh, roll down the highways of uh, North America. Uh, I think uh, the last time I'd, I'd, I'd heard you were going for a hundred thousand K on that thing, you were at sixty six at the time. Please tell me you still have that motorcycle and you've put a little bit more time on it since.
1: I i I have um <laughs> I have parts of that motorcycle oh, no. uh that motorcycle did not make it was it was an o four actually okay. and it did not make it to a hundred thousand it made it to seventy eight thousand i think and uh made it pretty clear to me that it was ready to become a parts bike okay so I bought an o five that had nineteen hundred miles on it. And it's up to 27 or 28,000. Uh, the thing is, it's got the same gas tank and the same plastic and the same cylinder head, the same bash plate, the same handlebars. I could go on and on. Mm-hmm. So uh, pieces of that motorcycle have gone 100,000 miles now, but it' a, uh, a complete motorcycle.
0: You know what? It's yeah, an organ donor program is getting getting it to the final to the, the checkered flag.
1: Exactly, right? exactly, exactly. So I'm I'd still like to think maybe the O five will do a hundred thousand. Okay. Um, but I'm not doing long trips like I used to. You know, I did Alaska and Baja and uh, Newfoundland and you know. I don't get as far from home as I used to, but uh, I try to ride every day. And yep. uh, you know, the the, the dual the, the KLR is exactly what you described. It's an incredibly sophisticated uh, piece <laughs> of equipment. And uh, you know, it, the part of the reason I have one is that I'm actually able to do some work on it. I can adjust the valves and and uh, you know keep the. Uh, the tires uh, changed, and the like oil it. changed, and you know a lot of stuff today. I, you know, I wouldn't even know where to start with all the electronics and fuel injection and all the rest of that. So, yeah, I like my uh, I like my KLR.
0: Absolutely, and, uh, like your your answer actually reminded me of two two uh, questions that I had for you. It's funny how that sort of works. Uh, is that uh, in one of the e- the first email that you sent? It was hilarious that you'd mentioned. Uh, then you you don't have to go too much into the story, but like. Uh, you mentioned that you'd actually been to Winnipeg, where I currently sit, and uh, at a racetrack that apparently held a, a flat track, which like blows my mind because it hasn't seen anything other than horses and I think the odd snowmobile race over the last 25 years. Um, the Assiniboia Downs once held flat track, which... Blows my mind that flat track never really took much of a stronghold here in Manitoba. Because if you don't know uh, geography that well, we're about as flat as a pancake, and you watch your dog run away for three days straight, only for it to turn turn around, and come back. Um, yeah. That like, how did you get out of here? Because and like, I'm I sure that at the top of the uh, the announcing tower or the uh, the press box at Assiniboine Downs, you could probably see Iowa from there.
1: <laughs> uh well that's it's pretty flat up your way yes. i'll will give you that uh and I was not able to ride there. I did okay. ride let's see did I come through Winnipeg I can't remember i rode I rode across Canada or most of the way across Canada once coming okay. back from uh oh I was coming back from Alaska sure uh but anyway um flat track. Had a pretty good Canadian contingent in the 70s, but most of them were from, most of the guys were from Ontario. Okay. Uh, but there was a guy from Winnipeg that uh, was, he loved flat track racing and he knew about the horse track and he made a deal to run a, a flat track race. And uh, I saw him at the next national, next uh, American national. He said, hey, if I get this. Race put together, would you come and announce it? And I said, Well, it's tough for me to get to Winnipeg because you know I got to work. He said, I'll buy an airplane ticket and uh... pay you whatever your you know your fee is. So he got the deal done, and I flew up there and. They had a bunch of Americans who, you know, drove from wherever, mm-hmm. um, just as you described. For you know, just keep driving and driving and driving and driving and driving, and eventually you'll see the skyline start to show up because yeah. there's nothing else more than three feet high for, no. you know, a thousand miles. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it was it was a good race, and then, and the track was great. It was limestone, which makes great flat track racing.
0: Yeah, absolutely. No, it was. Uh, th- this is flat. Tr- this this would be perfect flat track. Uh country but we just never taken much of a stronghold in fact we have, we have probably more Supercross-ish tracks uh, locally than than anything else but uh, um, the other thing I wanted to talk to you about was the fact that you'd mentioned that bikes more difficult to work on today than they were uh, like years ago even 10 15 years ago certainly when, when you got into motorcycles they were very rudimentary very simplistic um, what are your thoughts and you don't you, you don't have to get into this too much but the fact that uh, the story of a, a 16 year old working at a, uh, a radio station being able to afford a brand new or even a a, a- even close to new uh, motocross bike is a little bit far-fetched nowadays with the fact that uh, a brand new bike, if you wanted to go four-stroke, you're talking uh, minimum $12,000. Um, that, that's, that's a little bit it's like guys like my dad who worked at KFC to buy his first motorcycle for, like, it, it doesn't seem to, um, like, motocross specifically, like, I'm sure you want to talk about motocross. Motocross seems to have almost priced itself out of those stories.
1: Well, I've always been concerned about that, but, um, yeah, you know, I guess I kind of relate it back to a conversation I had with, he um, was a Kawasaki PR guy, I can't remember his name, doesn't matter, and this would have been 10 years ago, I suppose, and we were discussing the future of motorcycling. And I told him that I could distinctly remember in the 70s when I went to work for the AMA the huge concern that everybody had back then that a whole generation of kids was growing up typing on keyboards and playing with a mouse rather than picking up wrenches and working on a motorcycle. And the concern was how will these kids get introduced to motorcycling? um you know is it inevitably going to just die off for, for lack of you know new blood and he laughed and he said do you know what the biggest selling Kawasaki motorcycle is right now and I said no and he I don't know the model number but it was I think a 100cc kid dirt bike so he, he said you know they've Figured it out somehow. This was 40 years after we had the conversation about mini bikes and, and computers. Right. Um, and so I guess I kind of, I mean, I absolutely agree with you. Though, it, and it relates to the price of racing. It relates to, you know, a lot of things that, uh, you know, that are money, money, dr- increasingly money driven. But the offsetting factor, I think, is the passion that people who are hooked on motorcycling feel. And somehow they manage to manage, you know, they, they figure out a way to get a job, get the money, do the maintenance. I can remember all the predictions that four-stroke racing would kill motocross because, you know, the engines just don't have the longevity and it's a, it's a sin to, uh, you know, kill off the two-strokes. You know, I don't know. It seems Amen. to me like motocross is doing okay. It looks pretty good to me from the crowds and the turnouts and the rider counts and and all the rest of that. I'm not on the inside anymore, but right. um, people find a way.
0: For sure, I, I think that that's, uh, kind of um, speaks to the fact that uh, off-road has seen a huge uptick where people uh, maybe due to the increased amount of uh, like just the, the expense of the sport, they turn to a sport where you get more ride time for your dollar, maybe it's not the high-flying action of a supercross track or a motocross track, but it's time spent on two wheels and maybe that's why that's kind of taken more of a stronghold. I think you could probably name off more guys that are racing GNCC now in 2018 than you could back in 2001. Shane Watts is pretty much the only one I can think of. Maybe Steve Hatch, but um, yeah, like it's um, it seems that like as as much as like people have gone away from it slightly as far as motocross goes, like, I feel like there was probably more numbers. Uh, when I was growing up, but also the, I think that a little bit cyclical in the fact that I am the son of uh, a bit like i 'm some of a baby boomer, uh, and like my dad was on the tail end of it, whereas all of and all of the kids that I grew up with, all of their parents were baby boomers. I feel like when when I have kids and when my buddies have kids that 's when you 'll see that influx of young kids coming back to the track in greater numbers than you do now because all of those kids who race is now having kids that they're going to bring their kids back to racing and hopefully they understand the, the expense of it and they can, they'll, they'll find a way to afford it because of how much they value the, the, the experiences they had like the, the, Times I have at the races with my dad, I wouldn't trade them for, for anything. And I feel like uh, kids that grew up in the same atmosphere, they'll do the same. And that's why they'll buy a uh, a KTM fifty or now they have the KTM electric bike that's coming out for two thousand nineteen. They'll buy those motorcycles. They'll bring their kids back to the races, and uh, we'll be mixing gas, hauling ass, and enjoying that once once more. <laughs>
1: Well, I think I, I think you're on to something there. It is it is cyclical, it follows demographic trends. Um, you know, I think the huge success of Supercross to some extent was probably at the expense of, of outdoor motocross. Yeah. Um that said, I think it's pretty obvious, at least in America, that the uh that the outdoor organization since the sale of Pro Racing to uh the folks in Daytona uh, has uh has been you know superb in terms of how they've managed the sport yep. and what they've done with you know the tracks and the promotion and the crowds that they that they get i mean it if you, when you have a healthy national series like that um that creates a destination for kids you know to shoot for uh, I think that's, and, and obviously we know what kind of success Supercross is. To the extent that it overshadows the outdoor series a little bit, I think that's the only real problem. But either way, you've got a goal there that a that a kid can shoot for, and know that if he's got the right stuff, you can, uh, you know, he can have a great career. That's that's an important part of the mix. Add the demographics, and I, I hope you're right. I think you're right. Um, I'm pretty confident and optimistic about. The future of all kinds of motorcycling. Um, I, I think we're I think we're okay.
0: Oh, for sure. I like I think people like live in a bubble a little bit. A lot they they see down numbers in motocross and they think oh our sports dying. I'm like well hockey's down, football's down. The only thing that doesn't seem to be down lately is is soccer. But of course in that sport all you have to buy is the shoes and. Uh, <laughs> And that's a bit of a world game, so that, that's a whole other topic. But uh, last couple of things I had for you, Dave, and uh, we're, we're we're I'm I know I'm starting to I'm I'm playing with uh, uh, house money here as far as uh, how much time I have with you, but um, <laughs> motocross. I,
1: I told you I was in no rush. <laughs> I know, I know,
0: and, and neither am I. Honestly, I don't have to work out until uh, six thirty tonight. It's three thirty my time right now. I got time, Dave. Um, but. Um, I find this sport probably more – and I, I actually, I find in, in life, I find this is more prevalent in all things that I do. Motorcycles uh, seem to be the first thing that really hit, made it hit home for me is that life and success and the, uh, the enjoyment of all the things that you love to do is all about relationships. Especially in motocross, I feel like the relationships that you need to build so that you can enjoy the sport at its fullest are extremely important, especially in business. Uh, what are, who are, is there one of like, what are, what's the, probably the the most valued relationship that you've built over the last 40 odd years? I'm sure that's a crazy, ridiculously difficult question for you to answer and probably one that, uh, I probably should have uh, maybe prepped you for, but here it goes. <laughs> what's, what's your, the, well, the greatest relationship you've built over a 46, 43 year long career?
1: the 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 it has nothing to do with nothing nothing direct to do with business but uh, my 34 year relationship with my wife uh, who has never once expressed a single reservation about my motorcycle activity or any motorcycle I wanted to buy or when I uh, <laughs> well, I celebrated my midlife crisis by taking a shot at road racing I was 40 years old I got a the first Kawasaki Ninja, 1984, uh, 900 cc water-cooled Inline 4, bought one out of the Kawasaki press fleet, lived in the North Georgia mountains, rode like a maniac around the North Georgia mountains. On. Weekdays, you know, the crazy guys would all come up and on their sport bikes and roar around all weekend. Well, they'd leave, the cops would leave, and I'd have the place to myself for the rest of the week. So, but I scared myself because the bike was so fast compared to anything I was used to, and I told my wife that. And she said, Well, what are you gonna do? Are you gonna sell it? And I said, Well, actually I was thinking about racing it. Um, take it to the racetrack where there's nothing to hit and everybody's going the same direction. And she said, Well, that's a great idea. Can I go? Do I get to be part of this? And I said, Well, yeah, absolutely. So in my brief and not very illustrious road racing career, she was right there uh, you know, helping every step of the way and never once complaining, even when I fell off and broke my leg. So bless her heart. Within the television world Um, the aforementioned Ken Squire was a huge influence on me, and he had a partner. This is one of those cases where the influential people are not somebody you've ever heard of. He had a partner named Fred Reinstein, and Fred was probably the single most important influence and the single most important relationship that I've had in the business because he taught me so much of how the business works and also just how to be good at it. And it ranged from little things like the fact that I was a primarily a PA announcer when I got hired to do the T V show. And as you know from doing PA, you tend to yell at people because you're trying to be heard over the roar of the engines. Right. And when I got in the studio I was overperforming. You know, I was using my announcer voice and it just didn't make any sense. And it took him a couple of shows to get my studio presence sorted out and once once I got it, I mean it was obvious, and I had it uh but he taught me how to write for television, mostly I had written for magazines, so I used way too many words. He taught me how to let the pictures tell the story and just use the words to fill in where they need it for context. He was a great guy, I mean he worked. I don't know if the name Edward R. Murrow still rings any bells, but Edward R. Murrow was the first real American television newsman, and Fred worked for him when Lee Harvey Oswald was assassinated behind the Dallas Police Department after he killed President Kennedy in '63. The uh, Jack Ruby came out of the crowd with a pistol and shot him, killed him live on NBC. That camera was there because Fred Reinstein negotiated for a week with the the Dallas Police Department um, that this was going to be America's first chance to see this guy, and they needed to have a camera down there. And so it was at his insistence that that camera was there and recorded that, you know, tragic but historic moment Mm -hmm. he was that kind of guy he was a heavy hitter a big player but he liked doing racing on the side with his old buddy squire and i ended up being probably the primary beneficiary of that because of all the things that i learned from him
0: there you go so last thing i have for you uh dave and i really appreciate the time and uh, we can continue talking long after the podcast runs mm-hmm. out but uh what would you say to that there's like aspiring young uh broadcasters pa guys uh someone who wants to get into tv somebody who wants to get onto radio um they're sitting in front of you right now they ask you for a little bit of advice what are you telling them just think of something else or i uh-
1: I've had that question asked so many times and it's so hard because as we've sort of alluded to here, I got into this business by accident. It was just dumb luck. Never had any intention. Uh, kids asked me if they should go to broadcasting school. I don't know. I have no clue. Um, the only advice that I really can give is if that's really what you want to do, find a way to put yourself in that environment um I mean literally volunteer to be the you know the gopher that uh you know shows up at the racetrack and does whatever he's asked to do um you know there's so many ways in now. You can come in through a sanctioning body or through a, a race team uh the, if you look at where the p r people are coming from you know that's uh it's all over the block. social media creates a new opportunity to build a body of work so that people can see what you do um it, it, i guess my i guess my bottom line is if you want it badly enough, you'll figure out a way and the key to success is the first of all, you got to have some talent. If you don't have some talent, it's not going to work out. Doesn't mean you shouldn't try it. Um, you know, because that's how you define yourself over time is figuring out what you're good at and what you're not. One of the ways you define yourself. But um, assuming you've got some talent and that you've got some determination, do your homework. Be smart about. Try about where you try to apply um, you, you know your your skills, I spent a lot of time trying to do things with flat track racing that were never going to happen with flat track racing. They've happened to some extent with supercross lesser extent with motocross uh, for a while with road racing. Flat track's always been kind of the you know the little sister of uh of motorcycle racing um so yeah, if I were trying to get a build a career. In motorcycle racing that 's not where I would start if I were being smart about it, but that 's where my passion led me and it, in my case, it worked out so that's not much of an answer and, I, and and the reason i don't have much of an answer is because i've just been so fortunate to be able to do this without there ever being a plan that doesn't mean that Everybody else didn't have a plan. So go ask them, uh, and I'm not being facetious. Go talk to other people who do what you want to do and take their advice and use what you can and discard the rest and, and move on to the next uh, next opportunity. But if you want it badly enough, you'll find a way.
0: Fair enough. Hey, I think that's probably the best piece right at the very end there. And I totally agree. I My, my approach to it is that I'll announce – Anything and everything, it's all experience, uh, broaden your horizons, open your mind up to uh, announcing just about anything and uh, be up for a challenge. Honestly, the first time I ever did a, uh, a Masters of Ceremonies, like hosting uh, an event, I was literally going to be a, uh, attending that event and uh, was in line to grab myself a cold beverage before I was asked to do it, accepted the challenge. Boom, and then uh, now we are we're at where we are today. So uh, yeah, I think it, that's uh, some good lessons there. Dave, this has been a huge pleasure of mine to have you on the podcast. Um, you're, you're you're like I said earlier, you're completely to blame for all of this. Um, for, for, for the most part, and, um, I'll
1: again, add that like, to you know, my list of career accomplishments. Yeah,
0: no, I'll, I, I have your your Wikipedia page open right now. I'll actually just add add that to uh, your your accolades. Uh, we'll we'll put that in the uh, the, the, the the current um, uh, the current part. So, but uh, now, like uh, before, I let you go. What's uh, what's Dave de Spain up to these days? How do you stay busy? Um, what's what's on the on the horizon for you? Just, just your seven dogs and
1: running your, your motorcycle on a regular basis. That's the, it's amazing how much of how much of my day those seven dogs and ten motorcycles opera, uh, occupy. Between the two, the day just goes away, perfect. and yeah, uh, you know, get on that it, program. it's pretty, it's pretty nice. I'm I'm enjoying the pace. I'm not one of those people who uh, who suffers in retirement for not uh, having enough to do. I'm I'm finding the pace to be just perfect.
0: Awesome, man. Well, uh, I really appreciate you making the time. Uh, this has been amazing for, for me to, to have you on the show. Uh, I think we should maybe talk a little bit longer after we, we uh, stop the record button, but uh, I really can't, I can't thank you enough for making some time for us. It's
1: been a lot of fun. I enjoyed it. Uh, hi to all the folks who, uh, who tune in and uh, appreciate the opportunity.
0: Awesome. All right. Well, don't hang up just yet, but for podcast sake, we're going to cut it off right there.